0: Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt, and today it is February the 1st, 2007. I would kick off this talk with a a speech or parts of a speech that Richard Perle gave at at Oxford University in 2006 June the 7th this can be found on various sites but globalresearch.ca has parts of it up and you can take your pick, I'm sure each one has selected parts uh, from this whole speech, but, but with, with Pearl he doesn't hold too many punches, so it doesn't matter which version you read. It, this particular column it kicks off with a, a quote from Zygmunt Brzezinski, now remember <laughs> How these guys play so many roles Zigny Brzezinski Was on the television He was the first guy on TV after 9-11 uh, Claiming that Al-Qaeda And Bin Laden Residing in Afghanistan Had brought down the towers And he said this before the dust had settled uh, The same man, remember, who Amongst off the, the, the myriad of books he's put out there on global policies, released the Grand Chessboard a few years before 9-11, uh, with the need to go into the Middle East and take over oil and so on, and all that kind of stuff. The Council of Foreign Relations guy, uh, Trilateral Commission, and a whole host of other organizations. Big player. This is a quote from him. I think of war with Iran as the ending of America's present role in the world. Iraq may have been a preview of that, but it's still redeemable if we get out fast. In a cold war with Iran, we'll get dragged down for 20 or 30 years. The world will condemn us. We will lose our position in the world. And that was in Vanity Fair 2006 He speaks truth here And these guys will often speak truth as they play different sides And swap back and forth to confuse the public Or stir up the public even Because this man wanted this war The organisations he belongs to Have talked about the coming war for years and the necessity for having it. But it reminds me of Benjamin Franklin when the High Mason that he was came out of the, of the conventional meeting for the Constitution and spoke to the, you know, the lowly people, the public who were barred from getting in while the Masons put it together for them. And when he was asked, What kind of government have you given us? He said A a republic if you can keep it And I'm sure he said it with a little smile on his face Because he was well aware Of the real role That America was deemed to play Same thing with Brzezinski As he talks out of two sides of his mouth To continue with the article on Richard Pearl, uh, it goes on to say one US carrier task force is already in position in the Persian Gulf. Two more task forces are moving swiftly to take up their positions in the Iranian theatre. The controversial neoconservative American bureaucrat Richard Pearl visited Britain on the eve of the papal audience between Prime Minister Tony Blair and Pope Benedict XVI. Earlier in the same week, the Iranian Nobel Laureate for Peace, Dr. Shirin Ebadi, was in Britain to voice her concerns about a confrontation between the West and Iran. In London, Metropolitan Police swooped down on two suspected Islamist terrorists Believed to be in the process of building a chemical bomb, summertime tensions are building. So there's always these little things supposedly happening when these meetings are going on. At least we're told this to get the tension raised. It gives more credence to the meetings about terrorism. In bland remarks delivered to a small audience of students at the Oxford Union, Richard Perle outlined the Bush administration's response to the crisis of 9-11 and in neo conservative doctrines of preemptive war. Preemptive war uh, is taking the right to attack a uh, people on the suspicion that they might uh ill will towards you in the near future. In a droning monotone designed to anathetize his keen academic audience, Pearl explained the need for an invincible American military apparatus and a foreign policy predicated on the Bush doctrine of preemptive war permitting direct and simultaneous interventions into multiple theaters, multiple theaters uh, really it 's not just uh, different techniques of waging the war, which it does that 's part of it, but it 's also multiple fronts if need be, and we know the history of those who have taken on more than one or two fronts at the most. It's no surprise to find you overextend yourself and ultimately you're vanquished. While Perl stated his hope that the need for military interventions would be minimal, he left the impression that his definition of excessive use of military power might well differ from that of the average American or European citizen. Pearl is on the public record advocating preemptive strikes against North Korea, Syria, Iran, and a list of other countries. Some of his critics accuse Pearl of darkly malignant machinations. And that was reported in SourceWatch. Continuing, citing Iraq as a glowing example of an obvious need for direct intervention. Pearl admitted that he had long advocated military solutions for regime change in that theatre. In his talk, he reminded us that President Bush had launched invasion on the basis of several triggering factors, including Nigerian yellow cake. That's, I guess that's some kind of, uh, poison of some kind. Weapons of mass destruction, terrorist connections, democracy building and humanitarian issues. I love that humanitarian one where we're going to blow people up for humanitarian reasons. This pair was finally reduced to justifying the Iraq war as a humanitarian crusade, a theme that struck hollow in the midst of reports of civil war torture and U.S. war crimes against innocent civilians in Haditha. Questioned by a largely supportive audience of admiring students willing to attend a lecture, a late lecture on a Friday night, Pearl touched upon the diplomacy between the West and Iran in the most insipid terms he could muster. Taking into account the latest diplomatic developments, he gave his Oxford audience the impression that the outcome remains obscure, in spite of the fact that he is one of the principal architects and the sternest of the Iran negotiations. Pearl emphasized that President Ahmadinejad holds fanatical religious beliefs involving the necessity for an Armageddonite conflict to trigger the return of the hidden Imam at the end of the world in the Shiite tradition for the Last Judgment and the Islamic Apocalypse. So once again they dig up the old stuff, which you can find in every religion and bring it to the sufferers, and point and paint the followers as raging fanatics. That can be done with every, every religion. Perel signaled out the fanaticism of Islamic terrorism as the most serious threat to international security, and he praised the Israeli airstrike against Saddam's nuclear reactor in 1981 as a model of preemptive military intervention. In his view, the threat of precision airstrikes against the nuclear infrastructure of Iran constitute the best negotiating option. This makes me wonder because this is all about the nuclear reactors that Iran has been working on. It's so interesting to watch how India was allowed to get the atomic weapon Their arch enemy Supposedly Pakistan Was also allowed to have it Uh, But for some reason Iran can't Because they're trying to bring on the apocalypse And what's even more amazing Precision airstrikes against A nuclear reactor is going to cause Incredible Incredible leakage all over goodness knows what size of an area might round the world in fact if you remember the Chernobyl nuclear reactor meltdown so how can you possibly have an airstrike against a nuclear reactor Uh, safely it's impossible it looks to me like this pearl of wisdom here would would rather bring on uh, the Armageddon and then again, it could all be theatre to terrify the whole planet into so going along to a new way of living. Continuing, an Iranian student asked Pearl whether he considered the Mir and the Walt paper, the Israeli lobby, to be anti-Semitic. Castigating the 85-page paper as bad scholarship, Pearl admitted that he did not know what he was talking about when he confessed that he had not read it in its entirety. This question put Pearl on the defensive, and he asserted that there was no secret agenda amongst America's plethora of Jewish groups that sought to place the national security of Israel above that of the United States. In the limited time available, no one was able to follow up Pearl's pregnant point about the non-existence of a secret agenda with a question about the Israeli spy scandal that shook his own office at the Pentagon, when Larry Franklin was discovered to be the conduit between the Office of Special Plans and two Israeli officials, who were later identified as espionage agents, assigned to the embassy. Neither was he questioned about the incident that took place in 1970, when an FBI wiretap revealed that Perl discussed classified intelligence with an official at the Israeli embassy. Washington insiders have long considered Perl to be an Israeli agent of influence. Another fact fuels these suspicions swirling around Perl since he serves as a director of Hollinger International, which owns the Jerusalem Post. That was Conrad Black's newspaper, Conrad Black of Canada, who was subsequently made Lord Conrad Black by the Queen. Perl has been paid millions for his work for Hollinger even though he is the only outside director on the Executive Committee. Perl's complicated business dealings have brought him under suspicion for conflicts of interest and the charge that he is attempting to profit from wars that he was strenuously working to create and implement through his official capacity in the Department of Defence. In 2004, Perl's conflicts of interest resulted in his resignation from the Defense Policy Board. When a perceptive student asked about his preferences for the next President of the United States, Perl made some riveting remarks. He immediately stated his hope that Senator Joseph Lieberman would be the Democratic candidate, feeling that, miracle, Perl hopes former Governor Mark Warner will win the Democratic nomination. Perl warmly praised both right-leaning Democrats who were doyens of the Democratic Leadership Council. Richard Giuliani is Perl's favourite Republican. When asked about potential presidential candidates who would cause him concern, Perl swiftly reeled off a long list of Democrats led by Governor Howard Dean, followed closely by Senator John Kerry, former Vice President Al Gore, Former Senator John Edwards and he finished with his list of neoconservative hate figures with a revealing comment about Senator Hillary Clinton. I don't know what could be more revealing than was what's already been revealed. It is hardly a secret that Senator Clinton had attempted to appeal to the Israeli right. When she visited Israel, she condemned the Palestinians, but Perl was not impressed. Quite the contrary, Perl said that while she had made some smart moves in her attempt to appeal to the right, the left did not believe her. That gives impetus to, you know, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. This comment gave the clear impression that Pearl did not believe her either. Criticizing other Democrats, Perl said that Senator John Kerry did not understand power and was not able to perform the duties of the President of America. In his form of damnation by faint praise, Perl said that Howard Dean was a much nicer man off the podium than on it, and he gave him pride of place at the top of his most worrisome democratic politicians. The love affair between Perel's base in Likud on the hard line is really and the new conservatives of both US political parties is alive and kicking. Pearl has long been associated with Likud that has been reduced to a weak rump huddling around Benjamin Netanyahu in the New Knesset. As a close associate of Netanyahu, Pearl is seen as Likud's top-ranking advocate in Europe and America with his tentacles into both political parties the Bush White House, the Pentagon and many other leading institutions. Next year, it would not be surprising to find Pearl's name on contributors' lists to Giuliani, Lieberman, and Warner. The man should get a prize for having so many disguises and faces. He's outdone Brahma with his amount of faces, this man. And who does he really, really work for? uh, One thing is sure, it will never be the obvious. That's why it's been made obvious. the morning after his Oxford talk, Pearl appeared on the very influential BBC radio programme Today, where he was interviewed by John Humphreys, the ranking heavyweight commentator in Britain. Admitting President Bush's political weakness, Perel made a revealing comment when Humphreys pressed him on US plans to bomb Iran. When Humphreys pointed out that a unilateral US bombardment of Iran would be greeted with global howls of derision, Perl said, No American president who believes that there is a last opportunity to prevent Iran from becoming a nuclear weapons state is going to be deterred by derision. He will do what he believes to be in the best interests of the protection of those who might come under attack from an Iranian nuclear weapon, including the United States. That was on Today, BBC 4, 3rd June 2006. When Humphreys pressed him harder by pointing out that the former British Foreign Secretary, Jack Straw, you know, the straw man, had termed the U.S. bombing of Iran inconceivable, Pearl shot back with a revealing retort, well, it's no longer conceivable that he's the Foreign Secretary. Humphreys then asked whether Straw had been sacked over his offence, putting Perle on the spot by asking, you think there's a link there? Pearl replied, I don't know. He was re- expressing a view that the government had not concluded yet in a way that diminished the leverage to produce a political result, a diplomatic result, that's obviously unwise. This response left the clear impression that Straw had been removed specifically because he had ridiculed Washington's negotiating position, and that Pearl had been intimately involved in ordering and engineering the surprise sacking. While Perel was undergoing his public interrogations before six million listeners on the BBC, Tony Blair was entering the Vatican for his long-awaited audience. I was going to say sentence there. uh, Audience with Pope Benedict the 16th. Blair's last papal audience occurred early in 2003, shortly before the launch of Iraq War, when he pleaded with the late Pontiff John Paul II to support the crusade, crusade again against Islamic terrorist, oh, a crusade a holy crusade I, I, interesting, interesting terminology coming to the fore and Tony Blair, remember, has been in every other um, religion he's, he's he's been in to see voodoo priests and everything else so I don't see what seeing the Pope does I guess he has to, to play all the tunes for, for all the different peoples the German Pope has been a strident critic of fundamentalist terror. Uh, this is the Vatican. I'm talking about fundamentalist terror. What a history. The Vatican's code term for Islamism. And t- According to the published accounts, Blair and the Pope discussed the current negotiations with Iran. The Sunday Times reported Pope Benedict XVI pressed Tony Blair... To find a diplomatic resolution to the Iran nuclear crisis The Pope is more than well aware of the escalation of the military planning on both sides There can be little serious doubt that George Bush has given Tony Blair his marching orders And this thing continues with a lot of speculation and little bits and pieces And it's it's intended to heighten the tensions In the world Peril is no dummy And Peril can only say what he's told he can say To the world Because these characters Were set up long ago As a separate organization Almost a separate people really And they don't go by Judaism Although they'll play all sides at the top they'll play all sides The old saying When in Rome Applies here And Pearl And all these characters That created the new American Century Club Got permission to do it By Britain Because the US Was meant to take over from Britain And it has been doing that Since really World War One. That was the intent and it has the blessings of Britain and that's the special relationship that different Prime Ministers keep talking about between the US and Britain this special relationship this is a an ongoing agenda a very old one and they they must get the crowds all different sects of crowds following them, so they, they make sure they give us the leaders to follow, and then the people will cond- every mob condemns the other mob, and then you have chaos stirred up, and when you have enough bloodshed and chaos and fear and terror, you come out with the solutions it's interesting to see that around the, the late 1800s. Revelations in the New Testament suddenly took different twists And something which was really almost a second class or third class bunch of scripture Came to the forefront, deliberately so With the creation of the authorized British Israeli or British Israel movement and the doctrine that all uh, oh, the British people were really the lost tribes, or comprised some of the lost tribes, all this stuff came out of uh, secret service committees on how to control the empire and, and even expand the empire into a global empire, and they found that by reinterpreting revelations, they could convince followers that at the end of that time there were quite a lot of people who believed in their given religions you could convince the, the followers that this was a natural thing, the Britons empire taking over the world and then they got their branches set up in America because America they knew would have to take over because it had more manpower more industry, more space and could put up more factories and they would become the policemen of the world we have the admissions of people at the top who went into Lebanon after World War I such as Storrs or Storr who said we have created an Ulster in a hostile country talking about putting a new Israel in amongst the Arabs now who is we? because Star was talking on behalf of the crown the empire looking back over history this is nothing new this ploy of putting in a people into territory is either a buffer or to stir up tensions down the road whereby you could use as an excuse for going in to save somebody one or the other side or whoever In ancient times whole peoples were moved off their land at times not so much ancient either when we look at the places like the Highland Clearances of Scotland from the 1700s into the 1800s millions of people were just pushed off their land put in boats and dumped overseas by orders of the crown that which they make very obvious will ensure the hate will build up and that's what it's intended to do The reasons that we can be fooled over and over by the same techniques are because we are so well conditioned and so well understood by those who have access to tremendous sciences of human nature. The representatives we see near the top and the public view may don prayer shawls, or they may bow down to popes, or, like Mr. Blair, pop in to see voodoo priests. And it's all a charade because those people at the top, on all sides, don't believe in the myths off the old religions. They all belong to their own religion. Every, Every person at the top of every side belongs to a single religion. That's why they plan the future. That's why they never retire. That's why they're just as fanatical at 80 years of age as they were when they were 25. they also are brought up to their own stature and power or sphere of influence by pre-existent authorities you don't make your way up through the world by blasting a hole through the ozone layer of society and money and power if you were not allowed up, you wouldn't get you wouldn't get up. You'd be shot down halfway up. That's the reality of the world we live in. The the, the players we see are carefully chosen to play their parts on the world stage. Because it's the masses they must fool. It's not each other they must fool. They're all very high ranking Freemasons, way above the nonsense you'll read about on your local bookstore shelves, put out as PR about Freemasonry. Way above that. These are true believers, true believers in a very old esoteric religion. And that's why they never retire it's the only time you'll see such dedication on all supposed sides from the old men at the top the only time you'll see that is in a religion and it's not the religions for the exoteric masses unfortunately the the masses have accepted identity they've been born with, the culture they've been born into and then they've had their indoctrinations to make them blend into the mass their assigned mass and because of that they can be counted on to behave exactly as the elite want them to behave at certain times when they press the button this bunch goes off to kill that bunch etc etc with the same arguments over and over until it's monotonous Religion has never given the opportunity to allow an individual to find their true potential in this world or who they are The function of religion is to control the minds of the followers That's why they're authorised religions. The conflicts will go on and on until this great work is achieved. Now Albert Pike, who wrote Morals and Dogma, which was considered to be the Bible of Freemasonry, he said himself, he said we could just as easily have taken the writings of Xerxes or or some other ancient builder. The reason they took the Old Testament as a part, as a form of foundation was simply because most people in the West were Christianized; they could relate to some of the stories, but they could have picked any any ancient builder or a Persian king and he admits that this religion pre-existed most of our given history when the, the pharaohs for instance were very young the priests would educate them in how to maintain and hold power over the people over the masses these were sciences which were known thousands of years ago and it's based on the understanding of human behavior especially mass human behavior and because of that they can bring on conflict at any time they wish. It's a f- simple formula. In pre Christian Rome, the Romans, who taxed every country that they went into, they robbed it, they pillaged it, really, they drained them, the countries to keep Rome itself living in an incredible luxury and in a style so advanced compared to the countries they'd conquered and looted and yet their own historians tongue in cheek would let slip little bits and pieces being authorized historians no different from today and they'd tell you That They were looting the countries That they went into Under the guise of bringing Civilization to them Civilization And here's Peril Using similar terminology today Just simple formulas Where you demonize A people you want to take over and bring this strange odd thing called democracy to them people are fighting over democracy with their their left wings and their right wings and their left foots and their right foots and left eye and right eyes and very very schizophrenic indeed that they can't figure it out when I was really small I noticed By simply reading from the adult libraries That the organisations Such as the Royal Institute of International Affairs Were predicting the future in their own publications As I grew up I noticed that regardless of what wing they put in Left wing or a chicken wing This agenda sure enough carried forth This bringing of democracy to the world and you cannot get people to change their culture or traditional lifestyle quickly without violence and it's obvious these characters who are forcing this agenda are going on a business plan, it's a business plan we see with times, dates money spent, time spent on certain parts of the project The great builders, and they want to bring this humanitarian war to a a close. They want the same standardized system worldwide. How monotonous! There's nothing perfect in any culture since if we look back at the cultures and their systems they all have so much in common to do with beginnings uh, One one family that's maybe a little taller, more aggressive than the rest simply conquer their neighbours and take them over and before you know it they own a county they own a an area, then they own ultimately a country through violence the aggressive ones and they end up being after one or two generations of ritual and propaganda they end up being set in the mindset of the people as somehow portraying the tribe the pinnacle of your tribe in fact forgetting how they started off through mass slaughter murder and stealing so their gang gets to be the one on top and down through history they have other gangs come along and sometimes a new gang will take over and they become accepted by the people after a couple of generations as though they'd always been there and we watch pageantry and ritual So what you're looking at now is a battle of gangs And there's no doubt about it All cultures have their top elite gang on top That run the whole show So naturally they're not going to like it too much If someone wants to take away their their takings The place where they get their takings from Their lifestyle, their their prominence, their power Their status, their income It always struck me as odd that that which you could see in the playground of schools between competitive gangs wasn't seen in the supposed acceptable forms of leading families, preeminent families, very wealthy families because that's how they got their beginnings and that's how they held on to their power was by being completely and utterly ruthless the deviants are in control and have been down through the centuries money made it much much more easily easy for them to take over money Rome did it too they forced the peoples, the conquered to accept money and then they taxed it back from them and then paid them back in money to build for them and work for them it's a merry-go-round it's a concept a strange concept which most folk accept but never understand I'm surprised that some of the biggest betting shops in England, and they might actually be doing it because they, they do put bets on wars and so on to see which gang wins the gang of the world that'll use'll recruit thousands of professors and writers to convince us very quickly how natural all is, how natural this gang is in place, and how much better off we are. The ancient kings had, were very good at that kind of thing. How they builded cities, as I said, using slave labour. Yet without the participation of the brainwashed on all factions, and are willing to kill each other, for people will never ever see except on television, the ones who tell us to go off and do this and do that and kill without our participation none of this would be possible once again the understanding of human nature you'll notice that at least twenty years pass between major wars and that is because By that time, those that were crippled are often dead from the last war. The new generations have forgotten all about it. The ones growing up to be recruited for the next war know nothing about it. They think it's all glory and wonder and each one wants to be the the hero of his tribe. When he puts on that uniform, he'll be just like Rambo when he can go off and slaughter millions and just yells, he's got that big machine gun hanging there, something that weighs about half a ton round his neck. The fantasy of it all, the tribal nature which is utilised and understood to the full, works over and over again. Have you ever noticed that as you watch these conflicts being manipulated and how the peoples naturally withdraw into their own group as if on cue an actual response again Have you ever noticed as they quote God and, and all sides quote God you see that God's very quiet on the matter we need people to tell us what God is thinking and they do, they tell us what God is thinking or what God wants and God is a generic term every ancient God in the past was called God and that's no coincidence that's the general term that's used and yeah, we know that certain religions have their own secret word for God Deriving from the, the ancient times in the Arabian lands Because knowing the name of God meant the God had to serve you get had power over the genie The genie came out of the bottle And I often think the guys must have drunk the bottle first Before they saw the genie Yet we have all these people with all their fancy dresses on telling us what God wants. God's on our side, eh? The irony of war after war after war and masses of slaughter manipulated by very clever people who all coerced together to bring all these things around and how the public respond like robots when the tribal button is pushed people who would never in ordinary life without conflict they'd never think of going killing somebody suddenly want to do it the young men want to do it the older ones don't that's why they don't recruit older people for the military, they go after the young people around 18, very immature you see (coughs) they don't know any better, the movies have had tremendous effects on their minds they think they're indestructible And to top it off, we have the admissions down through the years of the the chemical tampering that's going on with troops to make them more aggressive. The new anti-malarial drugs that were given even to Canadian troops and some of which Caused hallucinations while they were on duty in Somalia, and there was a CBC documentary on that. And one guy said it was just like walking through rainbows, and at one time he pulled a gun out to chill a child's head and and pointed it just for the just for the fun of it. It seemed very funny at the time. When they don that uniform, they belong privately. They've sold themselves that's why they can be experimented on and that's why the cultures that had the elders which gave wisdom and kept the balance between the very young and the other age groups that's why the elderly have been discredited and the families destroyed Because they certainly did not want older people to have input into a young person's mind That might just put them off putting on a a military uniform and going off to kill For reasons they don't even question That's another sad part of it They're not interested in political strategies They're not even interested in their long-term political goals or who benefits and which families benefit through the financial scams that we see going on through because war is very very profitable uh, the average mercenary trooper and all peacetime soldiers are mercenaries doesn't concern himself with that he, he wants to be a hero he wants to be accepted by his peer group with honour and get little tin badges And little ribbons. Because deep down, he suspects that in his life, when he goes back to Civvy Street, he's going to get no respect at all, probably a low paid job, and have nothing but repetitive, boring stories to tell people. I've watched people at Remembrance Day Some of them call it Veterans Day In Canada and in Britain With these old codgers That dress up with their blazers Their blue blazers or black blazers And their little berets on And try and march along The old guys from World War Two, And now Korea And they'll cry when they tell their stories And so on and so on And yet, because of the bonding they felt under the threat of their lives You're talking about an increased bonding Because of of a survival instinct that was pressed to the full They have nothing else They feel like they've never lived after the particular war they were in Their mind, in a sense, stopped right there The rest of their life has been an anticlimax Of basic drudgery, And that's a sad statement And yet they encourage the young Those guys will encourage the young To go off and do the same The abused always seem to Go to the abuser Help in this particular system. The value system, the value system of what? For a few hundred families on the planet down through the ages. With various titles And honors and so on it Can control the rest The reason they can control the rest Is because most people Are afraid of Risk taking They conform Conform The priest's form They're conformed shaped they're scared to go against the grain because the other robots will look at them strangely and that's where people are until they wake up and have that spark to find out what's going on and that spark has to flare up into a real flame and get through all the nonsense that's there to trap you And all the finger pointing With traditional Enemies To really you and mislead you The reason families have never lost power Down through the many many centuries Is because They've always put someone else to be the scapegoat always and the public who don't think too far ahead will jump always on the offered scapegoat sad commentary on the world those with memory will remember all of the snippets of information from the covert wars as they were called going on all over the world Latin America and elsewhere where everyone's involved the special forces of all the Western powers the quiet killings quiet that is for for those who were living pretty well in Europe and, and North America who didn't hear the screams as their tax money pounded and slaughtered often from the air and being told about it doesn't impact most people They have no empathy for anyone outside their own family. That's a sad state of affairs, but that's what we have today. There's no cohesiveness, a natural bonding between peoples. Divide, conquer, right down to the individual. And that's when the state reigns supreme when everyone is conquered and separated I'll leave you tonight with a Canadian singer who wrote this song after visiting some Latin American countries and how he expressed what he felt at what was happening The promotion of wars by the big military powers on peasantry. For myself and Hamish, it's good night and please take your gods with you. the helicopter, second time today, everybody scatters, and hopes it goes away, how many kids they've murdered, only God can say.